Podcast One production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. You may have only heard of Luke Davies recently because of his Oscar nomination earlier this year for Best Adapted Screenplay for the Aussie movie Lion. However, it would be a big mistake to call the Sydney native an overnight success. Luke wrote his first screenplay in 2006 based on his semi-autobiographical novel Candy, which both Heath Ledger and Abby Cornish ended up starring in. He won the prestigious Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry in 2012 and now, after the success of Lion, his career has taken off. He's developing a limited TV series with David Michaud based on the Cold War thriller Catch-22. He wrote the Amazon film Beautiful Boys starring Steve Carell and now he's been snapped up by Tom Hanks to adapt the historical best-selling book News of the World as his next film. I sat down with Luke in his office at his home, which is an old craftsman oasis in LA's Koreatown, those are his words, not mine, to hear about his unique path in becoming an Aussie in Hollywood. Let's talk about this last year because it must have just felt like working at everything for so long and and when it kind of hit, it feels like everything kind of hit at the same time. Yeah, it did. It did feel like that and it is a funny moment. Also, it's that weird paradox that to the outside world, it looks like this sudden bang, here's this success. And, but on the inside, it's just the, it's just the result of all these little steps that happen one step after another over many, many years. But yes, it does feel huge in the sense that Lion has changed things a lot for me and that a wider worldwide audience loves this film and is moved by this film and that somehow that's leading to a busier life for me. Being nominated for an Oscar, does that really open doors and change everything like overnight? I'm not yet sure. It's too early to say how much does an Oscar nomination actually change things. It was the Lions screenplay that began to change things, that Mm. began to open doors. Basically, people who lost the bidding war at Cannes three years ago all wanted to meet me. So that was a real change because... My first five years in Los Angeles, I I could barely even get a meeting, couldn't get into any doors, you know. It was really a tough time. So first the screenplay changed things and then there was a second beat when the movie came out and people started seeing the movie and wanting to meet me (laughs) again. So I don't know what the... But I don't know what the Oscar nomination does. Does it mean I earn more money? I don't know yet. (laughs) Well, people say it's about your quote, right? That it does, like, basically your quote goes up if you have an Oscar nomination on your resume. Yeah, that's what I've heard. My quote will go up. But uh, <laughs> has that happened yet? Well, I haven't. It's There are things on the horizon that haven't happened yet. So I'll see if my quote goes up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Sydney. Yeah. You had a pretty normal, idyllic childhood. Your dad was a journalist. Your mum's a nurse. Yeah. What, what was it like growing up? And were you always interested in writing? It was a nice childhood. Big brother, little brother, little sister, tree-lined, dead-end street with a creek and bush. Uh, It was good. And um, Where did you live in Sydney? uh, Until I was 10. Well, until I was 3, I lived in Randwick. And then from 3 till 10, I lived in Pimble. 10 to 12, we moved to the country, to Wilberforce near Windsor. 
and then back to the, back to St Ives for the rest of high school, and then straight away I moved out and into Darlinghurst when I went started going to uni. But yes, I was always interested in reading from a very early age. I kind of grew up in a house full of books. My dad's a book lover and a book collector, and there were always books, and I was into it from seven or eight years old, quite obsessively. In fact, uh, there was a, a great feature on you uh, that aired on Australian Story on ABC, and uh, some of the pictures of you as a kid were amazing because you had a book in every single photo. I mean, did you just always love books? Yeah, it's weird. There's a lot of photos with me holding this book called Freddy Cat. I mean, this these are photos of me at four years old or maybe even three and a half, four, five. Obviously, this book was like my Linus blanket. The great thing about the internet is that recently, a couple of years ago, I tracked this book down and uh, ordered it and got to read it again to see, like, <laughs> what was all the fuss about? Why did I love this book so much when I was four years old? You wrote a letter when you were eight to the author of Tintin, Mr. Hergé. Yeah. Um, and he wrote back. Yeah, I was so into Tintin books. It was just absolutely essential that I write to this guy to tell him how much I loved his books, basically. It never struck me that it was a strange thing to do. And my dad, bless his heart, tracked down the address of the publishers in L London. So I wrote this letter and then I forgot about it. But three months later, I got this incredible letter back with this kind of embossed Tintin letterhead and this amazing, came in this amazing envelope. And, um, and this correspondence began. It went on for years through my early adolescence, you know, until I was about 15. I made the mistake of getting bored and not continuing the correspondence. And then a few years later, he died. So I, I really regret that. But I have this incredible collection of these uh, personalized letters and Christmas cards and photos. And uh, oh, it's pretty beautiful. Wow. Yeah. So poetry was your first love. And, and you, you were published as a poet first. Was that right? I was in a few little weird little journals even when I was 16. I got something published in some obscure thing. But, uh, yeah, I had a little book of poems published when I was 20. That was really the first thing that made me feel like, okay, this is my now – I'm in, now I'm fulfilling my destiny. Yeah, poetry was the first thing, but I was writing a lot of prose from early on. It just wasn't very good and it wasn't getting published. <laughs> so you said you felt like you were fulfilling your destiny. What, what did you think? your life was going to turn out like? I didn't know the details of it, but I basically had this feeling that I had two destinies that were essentially the one destiny. One was that no matter what, I was going to be a writer and I was going to affect other people the way that that book Cannery Row had affected me the first day that I read it at 13 years old. The second thing came along three years later. I was, I was into film and I used to get around to all the little Cinematheque things and I walked into this... Uh, cinema with my girlfriend at 16 years old and saw the Werner Herzog film Agira, The Wrath of God. This movie completely flipped me upside down and blew my mind and it was like, okay, I have to do this as well. I have to make films somehow. So it was a long, weird, long journey towards a way in which the two things came together. But the journey did happen and it did somehow come together after a convoluted... <laughs> couple of decades. <laughs> <laughs> you you went to university, you graduated from university? Yeah, I went to Sydney Uni. Yeah, I started very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at university and I, I kind of staggered through four years later. I, I made it through and <laughs> somehow got my degree. <laughs> and so you were out in the world, you'd finished university, 
what were you thinking you were going to do with your life? You were going to be a poet? You were going to just write anything and try and get all that stuff together? Or Well, I had competing and conflicting things going on inside me by the time I finished university. It was still absolutely not that I was going to be a poet, but that I was a poet. That's how I saw myself at 21 years old. But at the same time, kind of this uh, heroin addiction was just really kicking into gear. And so, so I was also that. Basically, you can't be that and anything else. So once the drug addiction really happened, then to be honest, what I was was a drug addict, not, not a writer. And then the, the struggle then was for most of the next, um, you know, six, seven, eight years was trying to, <clears throat> trying to win that unwinnable battle. When did it start? Were you in university when you started using drugs or earlier? Uh, earlier. High school was, you know, pretty chaotic. I think there was a few years where pot was like oxygen for me, basically. It was like breathing. Everything began kind of innocently. Um, I mean, you, don't, you never make a decision that today I'm going to do this. I'm going to turn a corner that will set in motion a series of catastrophic uh, years that will make everything very dark and very... <laughs> terrible. That never happened. It just happened uh, slowly, like the frog being boiled in the water. And then one day it's too late. And But yeah, through the uni days, I was taking more drugs. I mean, that's what I meant when I said I began very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and then just made it through at the end, somehow got through with my degree. But it was pretty scrappy towards the end. I wasn't paying much attention and I just got my thesis out of the way and and moved on into a darker period. How were your parents dealing with this? At a certain point, they became aware that I had a serious problem and was really no longer a person to be trusted or, or to be in their lives. Or So, you know, they coped, I think, as most loving parents would cope, which is with an enormous amount of anxiety and anger and um, despair. And so how long did this this decline, I guess, go on? And were you writing at all during that time? Were you still trying to have dreams? Well, decline is a good word. That's exactly what was happening over many years. I was always writing. I never didn't think that I wasn't a writer. I never didn't believe that somehow things would turn out to be okay. I just had this weird delusion that somehow things could be okay and I could still use drugs like a pig. Uh, that, was the, that was the problem. There weren't really any, had no evidence to prove that that was the case, but for many years I believed that somehow I could pull it off in a different way. But yes, it was a decline, but yes, I kept writing and through those years, maybe now and again, something that I wrote was kind of okay. But I didn't have the organizational capacity to even put a stamp on an envelope and send my work to magazines and, or journals. You know what I mean? It's like it was just a private little endeavor that happened um, while the other stuff was in the forefront. And, I mean, you had many really low moments during that time where you would think for some people that would be their bottom and it wasn't for you. So what, what in the end, what was your bottom? What do you remember about that day? The day that things changed... It wasn't a grand plan. It wasn't like suddenly there was writing on the sky. 
and trumpets. <laughs> it was really uh, just like I thought if I could get into a detox, I could get breathing space for a couple of weeks and um, then resume normal activity. That somehow I thought the breathing space would be a good thing for me. So it was not like I need to change my life, I need to stop using drugs. It was literally just like, oh, I just need to uh, go and hide for two weeks in a place that will feed me three meals a day. It was pretty much that was about as grand as it got, the thinking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, I heard this expression once, you know, you know you've hit rock bottom when things stop getting worse, you know. And, I, and for me, something like that began to happen finally. All the glory days of bad, bad trouble had kind of stopped. Instead, it was just this permanent, like, grey landscape of mediocre despair, basically. But that's not what happened. Something happened. I suddenly had this kind of revelation that the one consistent problem that had now been going on for 10 plus years was that I kept using drugs every day to the detriment of my good health and sanity. That little breathing space, if I could stop using drugs for one day, then what would happen if on the second day I also didn't use drugs? It was literally that kind of moment of revelation of kind of like, well, that's an interesting experiment <laughs> that I've never tried before. Well, if you don't use <clears throat> the first time, then you can't use the second time. And if you don't use the second time, then you can't use the third time. It's an infinitely recurring... Hence and the recovery phrase, you know, one day at a time, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it was like bring it bring it down to the here and now, but try and string some of those uh, single days together. And, the, and you don't know what's going to happen if you do that, but you do know that this particular catastrophic direction that always happens can't happen, which is the catastrophe of active, ongoing, full-tilt addiction. So um, after you came out of that period... How soon after that did you move to LA or were you in Melbourne sober for a while? That day was January the 2nd, 1990. The whole Melbourne life had fallen apart and the relationship that I was in, which was basically the relationship that I sort of fictionalised in Candy the novel and Candy the film, had fallen apart. Then there were years and years and years. It was another 17 years of a pretty interesting life before I moved to LA. It was getting... It was that first year of basically being institutionalized in a detox, a rehab, a halfway house, getting my feet back on the ground, having a nine to five job for a few years, beginning to write the first. You became a teacher, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I was a teacher in a private boys school, <laughs> teaching English and English as a second language. I mean, life changed radically. But in that first handful of years, also the tentative dreams began to like re-emerge re and come together and that dream was basically like, wait a minute, did I, did I so badly ruin everything that I can't dare to dream? Because that is what had happened. It was like, okay, I so badly ruined everything that I have to accept a mediocre future. It would be much, much better than the daily grind of being an addict. And then in, those, in that first handful of years, four, five-ish years, I started to um, take risks and write more and one thing led to another a book of poetry came out of that i mean i'm greatly compressing these years here but uh and then the no the, the beginnings of the stories that then changed direction and became the novel candy and but it was a long long time before i thought 
I'm going to go check out L.A. That was after the movie Candy came out, which was, it came out in 2006. Writing Candy, I mean, that must have been, was it painful or cathartic? I was about five years clean when I started writing Candy consciously as a novel. The processing of my life of like what the hell happened uh, in all those years, that was a very personal, private and difficult thing, but 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 good. It was a good thing to move forward into my life. Candy was not a sort of cathartic, therapeutic exercise in that sense. I was not writing Candy to exorcise demons. By then I was starting to get uh, focused on, okay, if you're a writer, then write. And write what you know, right? Yeah, that ca Candy was a pure example of a typical thinly veiled semi-autobiographical first novel just like pouring out of me. That was very much a write what you know situation. But it wasn't therapy. That's a separate private thing. But nonetheless, it was really difficult writing some of the darkest episodes. And in fact, I sort of wrote the novel out of sequence and saved the most difficult chapters for last. Yeah. And then a producer came along. Did you know this person who said, hey, have you ever thought about we'd like to make this into a movie? We went on for a few years writing drafts of this film, which was probably never going to get made because it was dark subject matter, junky love story. And that was the case for years. There was just no real sense that we were going to get this film up and made um, until Heath Ledger read the screenplay and the, the draft that existed at that time. And he basically immediately said, oh, I, I want to do this. And it was kind of instant, the change then, in terms of having so-called, you know, star power. Emil Sherman, the producer, came on board with Margaret Fink. They produced the film. Later on, Emil went on to form Seesaw Films with uh, Ian Canning, and then the rest is history. Those guys made The King's Speech a few years later, and then they had that experience of their lives <laughs> changing completely and utterly. And then he came back around with Lion. We fiddled around doing a few different things, this and that. Some things happened, some things didn't really. But then Lion happened and it changed everything for all of us. It must have been very surreal being on that set of Candy, watching Heath and Abby acting out your life. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here's the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of the tree called life. When I first met Candy, birds filled the sky. I want to try it your way this time. Yeah, the being on the Candy set was a strange experience. It was so long ago that the real events had happened and I'd been through these processes of channeling that stuff, fictionalizing it in a novel and then over many years and many drafts turning it into a screenplay. But nothing prepared me for the kind of visceral strangeness of seeing actors act out these things that had really happened. And some of those things that had really happened were extremely close to the way they really had happened, like the wedding scene or the overdose scene at the beginning of the movie and it was unnerving. I, I also learned, I was beginning to learn how not to be an overwriter as a screenwriter because actors are incredible and you can trust them and you, something that you think you need to over explain because on the page someone reading your screenplay needs to understand exactly what it is that you're trying to say. 
Maybe you do need to do those things and over-explain it, but at some point the actors are going to do something with a, a glance that covers the half page that you just spent two weeks writing. <laughs> and they'll make it magnificent and moving. Did you stay in touch with Heath after that? We had that brief kind of coming together during the pre-production and then the shooting of Candy. Not much other than that. Uh, we sat with each other at the AFI Awards, as they were called back then, now called the Actor Awards. Um, and um, really connected about some post-Candy things and made a plan to meet up again in, in L.A. And I arrived in L.A. and then he was off making movies and he basically died six months later. It's sort of tragically ironic in a way, really, that, I mean, he didn't die as an addict, but... He died with an accidental overdose himself. Yes, and I completely agree with what the coroner said, that it was an accidental overdose. But on the other hand, and I think there was a kind of struggle going on there that ended so unnecessarily and so tragically, because what all of us know is when we look at that small and beautiful body of work, is not so much the power of the body of work itself, but the question of what was to come as he started to grow into himself. There was an amazing future there, this beautiful soul who was all so troubled. Coming up on Aussies in Hollywood, we hear about how screenwriter Luke Davies finally made the leap to LA after the success of his debut film Candy. He definitely faced a couple of challenges to say the least. It was five really tough years. I somehow scraped a living, I somehow survived. Yes, at the worst of it, there was this period where I was so broke. I not only owed Alex eight months rent, I was completely maxed out on the two credit cards that I just juggled. All I could ever do was keep them at the maxed out limit and um, pay the monthly repayment to keep myself out of trouble. Find out how Luke overcame the struggles of moving to LA and how his Oscar-nominated movie Lion came into his life. That's coming up on Aussies in Hollywood. When did you arrive in LA? I was going out with a girl at the time who had was acting and then she'd done a couple of things in Australia and she came to LA in early 2007 to just check out the, the pilot season thing and the get meetings with agents thing that actors do and <laughs> I and Candy had come out I had a great experience on Candy and so I just tagged along with her it was like okay I'll come and I'll see if I can get some meetings and I'll see what the story is with getting representation finding an agent I just had a beautiful experience at the screenwriting level of Candy and I was like well okay what's next so that's that was in April 2007 I came here that relationship was ending at the same time suddenly alone in LA on a tourist visa with no particular home or life to go back to in Sydney. It was tough. But at the same time, it was like, okay, when, in that case, I'm just going to stay here and see what happens. You're going to be in pain at the end of a relationship. It doesn't particularly matter where you are. <laughs> and in some ways, doing it without the uh, comforts, of the familiar comforts that you're used to in a familiar place is a, b a better thing to do because it's more exhilarating and it's braver and it's kind of like, okay, why not? Why not throw a little bit of extra craziness into the mix? So <laughs> that's what my first year was like in L.A. Did you know anybody in L.A. when you got here? I knew hardly anybody. I mean, 
I was friends with uh, Ben Mendelsohn, but he was always coming and going. I was friends with Alex O'Loughlin. He, he became my rock and best friend in LA. He, he's that Australian actor who's been living in Hawaii for a long time because yeah. he's been the Alex star. Alex is in Hawaii 5 Yeah. And he started out in America in Moonlight. And we were already friends, uh, interestingly enough, <coughs> because... Before Heath came on the scene, Alex was at that point about to graduate from NIDA. He was a he was on Neil Armfield's radar as a contender for the lead role of of Candy. Anyway, wow. he, he and I had kind of become friends in Australia for this period of a couple of years. It was in LA that he took me under his wing and was really supportive in a really difficult time. He'd been here at that point four or five years longer than me and got himself into this TV show and. We ended up sharing a house together and that really turned into the household that I now share with. I still share with Alex, even though he lives in Hawaii shooting that TV show 10 months of the year. And um, a couple of our good friends who used to visit us all the time and stay in the converted uh, office, they live with us now. That's David Michaud and... And Mira Fox. And Mira. David, who made Animal Kingdom and recently made War Machine, that Brad Pitt film. And uh, his girlfriend, Mira, who is both an actor and um, writer and director, who is soon to make her first feature film. So, yeah, we have this little Australian gang living here in Koreatown. Have you always felt that Australian support when you, you said Alex took you under his wing? Was it important to have that connection with people from home rather than just Americans? Yeah, I didn't think that that was important when I came here. I remember thinking, why would you go to Los Angeles and seek out other Australians? That's just why. <laughs> In fact, being here made me realize how wonderful Australians are, how different Australians are. It's not like everyone has a blended personality. It's like there is an Australianness to Australians that you appreciate much more when you're away from it. There's a shared sense of humor, a shared irreverence. So despite my initial intention to not find a little <laughs> tribe, I now currently live in a little tribe in this little house in, in LA. And we should say we're sitting in your guest house, which is also where you write, do a lot of writing. And in the main house is where Alex has a room and, and, and David and Mira. So it's definitely a tribal thing, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's like a mature frat house. <laughs> you know, we can pay our rent. We all have, we're on the similar page about basic household cleanliness. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like when you're 18 years old and you're like, somebody somebody drank my milk from the fridge. You know, it really <laughs> doesn't work like that anymore. It's very pleasant. <laughs> and and obviously it works in, in a work setting too because now you and David are pitching the series Catch-22. So you're all kind of collaborating on a, a professional level too. David and I are working on uh, this um, six-episode miniseries adaptation of the beloved uh, Joseph Heller novel Catch-22, which Mike Nichols made a film of back mm. in 71 starring Alan Arkin. We're, we're deep in that engine room. I've been in that engine room for more than a year uh, writing the episodes. David's going to direct and we're about to see what happens when we go out there and try and sell it to a studio or someone. <laughs> so there were still a few years when after you got here. I, I think you described it in an interview as it was an abject failure. You owed rent to Alex. What made you stay? Yeah, it was failure. It was it was it was five really tough years, basically. 
I somehow scraped a living. I somehow survived. Yes, at the worst of it, there was this period where I was so broke that Alex kept allowing me. He let me fall behind for eight months, which was incredible of him. It was, and it was humiliating and embarrassing to call him month after month and say, I can't pay the rent again. And, then, and, then so, and when I won the Prime Minister's Literary Award, it was $80,000. It was the most incredible moment because I was not only, I not only owed Alex eight months rent, I was completely maxed out on the two credit cards that I just juggled. All I could ever do was keep them at the maxed out limit and um, pay the monthly repayment to keep myself out of trouble. So when that happened, I got out of debt in one day. I've never been in debt since. Paid Alex the eight months rent. <laughs> he was so kind. He was so like, it's cool. It's cool. Okay. I know you'll pay me back. And I did. We're really close friends and, and friends pay each other back. <laughs> it, it was coincidentally also the turning point. It's when I was doing one or two things with Seesaw Films and then one of them became the film called Life that Anton Corbine made a couple of years yeah. before Lion. And, and that was, you know, life didn't set the world on fire, but it was a turning point for me. It was just, the, it was income. And suddenly it was like, oh my God, I can breathe for the first time in five years. So when did Lion come into your life? Sometime in late 2014, Emil Sherman, one of the candy, one of the producers of Candy, he came to me and said, "Have you heard about this kid who got lost in India and found his home through Google Earth?" And I said, "Oh, I did actually read that story this week. I, I had read it online somewhere and thought, no, oh, that's an amazing story. Didn't really think much of it. But I think the reason that I had read that story online was because the book Long Way Home by Saru Briley had just come out. And Seesaw Films, Emil Sherman, had just optioned that book. So it, what, uh, there was a connection between me seeing this article online. Uh, so he basically said, have, have a read of this book and tell us what you would do if you got the job of uh, adapting this book. What would be your approach? So it wasn't like a job offer. It was like an offer to audition, basically. But I read the book. I didn't know screenwriters auditioned as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Apparently they do. Well, I did for Seesaw Films. I was in competition with at least one other person and that I heard about and then maybe a couple of others. I read the book I, in 24 hours. I instantly saw how incredible this film could be. Basically, I, I could foresee the very end of the film when everyone would cry. I immediately knew how, how that would happen and... So I was very enthusiastic when I sort of pitched it to them, had a conference call with Garth Davis, the director. For, that was the first time I met him, was basically this kind of one and a half hour call with Emil Sherman. And from that phone call, I went away and wrote this kind of 10 or maybe 15 page outline, very rough of how I would structure the film. And, and by then, a few weeks later, I was in Paris and then the next phone call happened when I was in Paris and it was, all, again, a conference call with the three of us. And it went for a very long time, but I think that's the call that got me the job. A few days later, they called and said, you've got the job, leave Paris, go to India. Saru's there, the real guy who the film is about, uh, and he will meet you and he will show you around all the places where the real events happened. And so that was the beginning of my research trip. So that was a great adventure really going to the the real station where he got lost mm. in Calcutta and uh, the real orphanage where he wound up and his the real village the real room where he grew up and I met 
I met his biological mother and the whole journey was incredible. And then we flew to Hobart and I met John and Sue Briley, his adoptive parents, and uh, saw where he grew up once from the age of five years old. Wow. There's some, I mean, I cried just watching the footage of um, Sue and his biological mother and him, you know, finally meeting. I think there was the 60 Minutes footage, but yeah. what was it like for you being right there with that, all of that going on? I mean, and it was also painful for his mom because you were asking and probing with a lot of questions, right? It was very intense in, in India, in Kandwa, with his biological mother. Um, because she just weeps or she wept the whole time. We spent two hours or more, two or three hours, where I had my notebook and my tape recorder, Saru sitting there with her. They stroked each other the whole time. She wept the whole time. There was a translator, so there was a certain awkwardness to it. I would ask a question that would be translated. That would make Kamala cry yet again. This went on in this loop and I kept apologizing for making her cry. And she kept very bravely saying, no, 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 I, this, it's totally okay. I want to do this. I want to help. I want to answer your questions. It was, it was amazing. In a, and in a much quieter way, it was amazing then, a week and a half later, being in Hobart and meeting Sue, you know, the other rock of Saru's life, mm. the, his adoptive mother, the one Nicole Kidman plays in the film. Um, <clears throat> because she's one of the kindest and most compassionate and loving people that I've ever met, you know. A lot of the tension in the movie is because the character, Saru, played by Dev, thinks that he will be hurting his adoptive parents who have been so kind to him if they know he's off searching for his biological mother. Uh, The the reality couldn't have been further from the truth. And Sue Briley's loving generosity is the sort of anchor point of the film. I'm starting to remember. Saru, you're a beautiful boy. You're very proud of yourself. A life I'd forgotten. Are you okay? I had another family. A mother. A brother. I can still see their faces. What happened? It's sort of ironic that this movie has has been the movie that has sort of really broken you through in a big way and that it is an Australian story, an Australian director, Australian... Australianness, like, yes. um, and yet you're still here in LA and it happened to you that way. I mean, does that feel kind of ironic to you that after all the time that you spent over here, that it was something that really came in a magical way from home? Well, it gives me greater hope that a film like Lion is evidence of the fact that we are in a truly international community and if we can do the right things, then we can break through Uh, certain restrictions that we place upon ourselves when we view ourselves. So yes, I view myself as an Australian. I love Australians. I love the Australian sensibility. I love the Australian film industry. On the other hand, I'm really, really happy that Lion has such a universality that its it's Australian-ness is neither here nor there in some sense. And I wish for the Australian film industry to continue to expand in in that sense. The other thing I keep asking all the people I interview is, do you see anything in common with all the Australians that came here and actually made it in some way? I mean, do you feel there's something inherently 
in Australians that makes that happen more outside Australia? My own story, in for better or for worse, it involved a kind of uh, quiet persistence in the face of rational evidence that I should probably give up the ghost. But I just chose not to plug into the, the, those insecurities or those moments of despair or that question of what the hell am I doing here. Life is this interesting mixture. Your creative life is this interesting mixture of, yes, talent. Yeah, I think I have talents and skills. And yes, luck, an extraordinary amount of it is good luck. But if you want to, if you want to increase your chances of being in the right place at the right time when the good luck happens, then be in the place you want to be in when the good luck, luck happens. And that means that there's a third thing, not just talent, not just luck, but actual persistence. And in a very mundane fashion, what persistence means is uh, line up and shuffle forward. So there's that there for me as well. Also, there's a lot of other things. Uh, if you want to make it here, which is, you know, one way of looking at it is, okay, why not go for the biggest stage possible where many, many things happen? And yes, it's the American film industry. And yes, a lot of, a lot of it is bad. That's not the point. The point is that one out of every 10 movies are really good. And what a beautiful dream to want to be involved with those one out of 10. What people don't realize is that Australian actors either have been to a handful of those Australian drama schools, which are really good in terms of a solid three, three or four years of training and skills building, or they've done a kind of apprenticeship in those uh, TV shows like Neighbours and so on. They come here at 21, 22 years old with an amazing skill set. It's not the same as coming from Kansas to Los Angeles and doing a bunch of improv classes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like they're different. Yeah. The skills they're level. a fresh face, but they've got all the experience. Yeah. And so in some ways, it's not a level playing field in that sense. But there is, but that's one other possible explanation behind the question of why do Australian actors get a disproportionate amount of roles. And a lot of people also say because we're kind of famous for our work ethic. I don't think it's a coincidence that they're all just considered really lovely people like Kate Blanchett and Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman and Naomi Watts. They're all really considered like they don't have reputations for being difficult. They right. don't upset people or make people cry on set or, yeah. you know, they, yeah. they actually are able to do that thing that they do which must take a lot out of them without taking it out on anybody else. I yeah. mean, you would have been up close watching that with Nicole, I'm sure. Well, you're friends with Nicole Kidman and I, be, because of the success of Lion, because Nicole and Dev loved it so much, they were so on board with that four months worth of intense head toward the Oscars kind of publicity machine yeah. that the Weinsteins do. And they they were both like, I, anytime I'm available, I will come and do Q&A screenings and so on. So we had this there was this period of a few months where suddenly we were all together doing screenings a lot. She is just the loveliest person, the most down-to-earth, non-pretentious, without tickets on herself, funny, irreverent, gregarious, uh, really Aussie. I, I, it was so great to get to know her a little. Yeah. Now you're working with Tom Hanks. How did that happen? So my manager, you know, I talk to her a couple of times a week and she's always telling me what's going on or what contact she had from people. And she said, oh, I got these friends, these producers, they just optioned this book. It's interesting, but you're too busy now for the next year. And I was like, 
Yeah, you're right. I am too busy. But what's the book called? Just out of interest. She and she said it's called News of the World. So I, I went onto Amazon straight away. I read the first three pages on Amazon, the little sample you can read. And I was like, that's a great beginning of a novel. Bought the book instantly, read it that night. And I called her back the next day and said, I know I'm too busy, but that book is incredible, magnificent. And, um, and I really want to tell that I want to be involved. I want to put my hand up and say, I know how to write this film. And then everything came together in a good way. The, the producers just at that moment or a week or two later saw Lion. So suddenly I was a contender to write that film because of the, the effect Lion had on them. And then, they, then I learned that Tom Hanks had also read the novel and contacted them and said, I'd love to play this guy, this character. And then within another month, he had come much more strongly into the picture uh, in terms of his company is producing the film, is producing the film with the, the other producers. And so that's, that's happening. And I got the job. Again, there were, maybe there were other people going for it, but I stated my case and I, I said, <laughs> this, is how, this is what I would do. This is what I think needs to be changed from the novel. This is what I think needs to be emphasized from the novel. These are some ideas I have about the big, amazing emotional scenes, how they would feel and play out. This is what I would do differently at the end. It was just a number. I had like five strong thoughts that were just my, my kind of basic pitch. And then I, I got the job and it, that's all happened in the last few weeks. So that's what I'm about to move Did into. Did you have to pitch to Tom himself or? Yeah, we, we went and I met him and it was. Um, a <laughs> that must have been surreal. It was. Yes, it was surreal. I mean, I like pretty much everybody. He, he's the greatest. He's like a kind of, he's like an American folk hero to me. And also as a storyteller, I don't know if you've ever listened to like Tom Hanks in There's a couple of podcasts floating around. Yeah. The guy is like a, 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 an American poet. He's an amazing storyteller. And he was every bit in that room, in that meeting, he was every bit the amazingly nice guy that you kind of basically expect him to be. And, and that was a lovely experience. It was just, yes, it was surreal, but it was also very pleasant. And um, that meeting ended with him and his producers saying, well, let's do this thing. So that was a pretty good feeling. Well, we're looking forward to hearing much more of your words, whether it's poetry or film or books. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and uh, onward and upward. Thanks for having me, Jay. Luke's an example of how persistence can pay off, not only in LA, but also through his own personal journey as a creative and a screenwriter. He's only just breaking into Hollywood despite having moved here so many years ago. The fact that Luke's embraced and been embraced by fellow Aussies in Hollywood during his time here is one of the many reasons, I think, why he was able to make it in the States. Although the 2017 Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay ended up being won by Moonlight, I'm predicting that not only will Luke get nominated again, but he'll win an Oscar during his next chapter here in Hollywood. Next time on Aussies in Hollywood. Adelaide-born Teresa Palmer is a true stayer in LA. Someone who's persisted and stuck it out regardless of any challenge she's been faced with. As Teresa turns the next page in her career, as well as turning the next page in her life as a mother. She shares with Jenny how she almost missed out on her most recent standout role in Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge. I jump on Skype, I was like, I'm so sorry. And I see him 
standing there and there's like a bunch of people behind him with their arms crossed. And I was like, oh my God, I'm mortified. And then I realised that my camera's not working. And so I hear Mel saying, all I can see is a picture of you and a dog. And I was like, oh God, it's a, that's my that's my profile pic of me and my dog Luna. I apologise, I'm gonna, I, I swear I'm gonna get this working. That's next time on Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood is recorded in LA for Podcast One. Recording is by Andrew Sink. Audio production by Alex Mitchell and Nick Slater. Produced by Tim Dunlop. Executive producer is Jamie Cho. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.